one of the big reasons i think that teenagers are not very happy is because they feel like they have all the capabilities of an adult you know they certainly are physically able and they also feel mentally just a sharp and intelligent but they don't have that sense of autonomy right they don't have the money they don't have the resources to take the decisions and they often feel that their parents or their well wishers or caretakers are really controlling their outcomes and that's a huge cause of that angst Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I hope you're having a great day because guess what? It's the only one you've got. As of tomorrow, today is over, so you might as well make the most of it. Hey, let me ask you some questions, friends. Is there something about being successful? Because by the way, that's what you are. And if you're not yet, you will be soon because you listen to Crazy Money. Is there something about being successful that makes you less happy? Do you think that one of the side benefits or the side penalties that come with being smart are overactive brains that fill our heads with negative thoughts? Are we hyper-conscious about outcomes and awards and recognition that other people don't spend so much time obsessing over? And if that's the case, what can you do to calm those voices in your head? These are topics we address today with Raj Raghunathan, who is the author of the book, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Yeah, good title, right? He's also the creator of a wildly successful Coursera course called A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment that like a gazillion people have participated in and completed. He's also a professor of marketing at Macomb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Hook em horns, unless of course you're an Aggie, in which case listen to this anyway, please. In today's conversation, Raj and I talk about how being smart and successful might actually work against us. Yes, I'm putting myself in that category when it comes to being happy day in, day out why relationships are more important than money, the three main categories of our negative thinking, and whether or not happiness is a choice. Raj is a very committed and thoughtful thinker on the topic of happiness and success. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. My friends, here is Raj Raghunathan. Raj Raghunathan, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you very much, Paul. Happy to be here. Raj, you're a marketing professor, so theoretically you're supposed to be teaching your students how to sell widgets up to the point where marginal revenue equals marginal cost. Why do you spend so much time thinking and writing about happiness? Yeah, great question. And I do, you know, to be honest, I do teach them marketing. But I also realized about, you know, 15 years ago now, that happiness is a very important thing, Uh, maybe especially for people in the business world, because the people in the business world have everything else going for them. They're successful by conventional yardstick. They have money, they have power, they have status, they have control, but happiness is missing. And this lack of happiness among people in the business world is very important because everybody deserves to be happy. But I think also if the business people aren't happy, then they send out ripple effects that are not necessarily good. They're unhappy. They're going to make more self-centered decisions that satisfy their own set of requirements and needs. And happier people in general tend to be more altruistic. And because the business people control a lot of resources, if they're happier and are making decisions from a standpoint of being happier, that's better for the whole world. So I started inquiring into the topic and ended up offering um, these classes on happiness. And I didn't realize that I had actually underestimated the level of hunger for the topic among people in the business world. And so Fast forward 15 years and I have a book. I have two online courses. One of them is uh, really popular and I have a lot of blog articles and I get invited to give TED Talks and so on and so forth. Yeah, so that's a short answer to your question. So the book is titled, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Are smart people happier or less happy than non-smart people? Uh, It's a great question. It depends partly on how you define smartness, right? So in general, when people are asked to define smartness, I think that they would define it in terms of intelligence, IQ, things like that. And if you look at the research on that, it turns out that smarter people aren't necessarily happier than less smart counterparts. Um, Not that they're unhappier, but they're not necessarily happier, which is a bit of a conundrum, right? Because if you think about smartness, it ought to come in handy, you would think. And most people want to lead happier, more fulfilling lives. And so, You would think that smart people would be happier because they know how to figure things out. And given that happiness is an important goal, you would think that compared to their less smart counterparts, they'd be better at arriving at the recipe for happiness and be able to implement it. But it turns out that there isn't really a correlation between IQ, let's say, or, you know, academic success 
and uh, and happiness. You cite in the book that past having a bachelor's degree, additional education actually has a reverse correlation with happiness. So which direction does the causal vector point? Mm-hmm. I don't know for sure which direction the causal vector points, but it is interesting, isn't it, that beyond an undergraduate degree, getting, a, say, a master's and certainly getting a PhD doesn't move the needle of happiness upward. If anything, it might move it downward. So it seems like there is such a thing as, you know, being too aware or too educated uh, when it comes to happiness. <laughs> is this why university professors are always sniping at each other? <laughs> We have other reasons for doing that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, I think that, you know, actually, if you look at the data on different kinds of professions you could be in and look at the happiness levels across professions, being a university professor is actually not a bad gig. We are quite a happy lot, right? And But, you know, we could have been potentially happier had we not gotten our PhDs, I suppose, if you look at that data that we just talked about earlier. But it's not a bad profession at all to have. Do smart people have brains that are too busy? Or let me put it another way. Is the voice in the back of my head, and yes, I'm going to define myself as smart, just like 80% of people think they're above average. I'm going to include myself in the smart sample. Is the voice in the back of my head more annoying than the voice in somebody's head who experiences less complex thoughts, let's say? Yeah. So one way in which you could say smart people are different from the not-so-smart or less smart is that they uh, think better, right? I mean, what do we mean by think better? They come uh, to more valid conclusions or solid conclusions. They make better predictions a little bit faster or more reliably. They can figure out the cause-effect relationships between things a little bit better and so on. And that requires training, right? I mean, you need to kind of figure out how to think. And that's, I think, one of the differentiating factors between smart and the not-so-smart. But what could happen as a consequence of all that training is that you overlearn to think and you believe that I could arrive at an even better solution to a problem if I just think a little more. Uh, you get kind of addicted <laughs> to thinking, you know? So, you know, I call it mind addiction in my book. I do think that that is one of the kind of pitfalls of uh, being smart is that you fall into the trap of overthinking about things. And so you're maybe more prone on the margins, at least, to ruminating about things or not being able to stop thinking about something and uh, being a maximizer. I don't know if you've heard of this term, but, you know, wanting an even better solution to any problem rather than just settling down with a with an acceptable solution. So you might actually, objectively speaking, do better in life, but in terms of your subjective experience, you're probably going to be worse off. I find it interesting that you categorize negative thoughts that we have, that there's three main buckets of negative thoughts. And I was like, oh, I recognize each of these buckets. My voice at any given day, I'll check off each of these boxes. The first one is inferiority. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting how we arrived at that, right? We just asked people to kind of shut off their thoughts and see if you can do it, kind of, you know, do a mindfulness practice and looked at the content of what remained when people were attempting to do that and kind of, you know, list all those thoughts that uh, spontaneously come to your mind when you're attempting to not think of anything. And what we found is that, you know, there are these three buckets of thoughts and they tend to be negative. Not that people are having negative thoughts all the time, but they're having more negative thoughts than they think they have. And one of those buckets indeed is this kind of inferiority thing. And that comes from social comparisons, right? And I think a lot of smart people tend to be successful as well. And one of the byproducts of that success, unfortunately, is that you tend to kind of then engage in a lot of social comparisons, you know, comparisons with the Jonases, so to speak. And I want a bigger house or a lovelier car and so on and so forth. And so that then leads to feeling inadequate because smart people are also, and successful people are also aspirational. And so we could engage in downward comparisons, what are called downward comparisons, right? I mean, people who have less than we do, but that won't motivate us to achieve more. And so we want to achieve more. And so it's almost like a desirable thing to compare yourself to people above you who are inspirations for you and you aspire to replicate their successes. And that then leads to feeling inferior, which is obviously not very good for your happiness or your self-esteem. So the flip side of ambition is chronic sense of dissatisfaction. Yeah, I think that I think there is a way in which you could be ambitious. And, you know, I can talk a little bit about it without falling as much into the trap of feeling inferior. 
But in general, yes, I would say that there's a strong correlation between wanting to achieve success and being ambitious and suffering from this inferiority complex. You had this really cool observation, cool and kind of scary observation, actually, that the state of being superior does lead to happiness, but the attempt to become superior makes us miserable. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the distinction there? I think that you, you really caught on to the subtlety there. And, you know, sometimes you got to kind of think through that a little bit because it can get complex. But the idea is this, right? That if you are quote unquote superior, and what I mean by that is that you are wealthier or better looking or faster or more able than your peers, right? Uh, your, your relevant comparison points, uh, then you tend to in general enjoy a better set of outcomes and a better life. And you're psychologically less stressed out and you tend to live longer and so on. And there's lots of studies that show that. So you would think that is true. Then obviously, then what I should do if I want to be happier and I want to live longer, and most of us do, is to chase that superiority. But it turns out that chasing that superiority actually lowers not just your chances of being happy, but also, ironically, your chances of being successful and therefore superior, right? So it's a little bit of a conundrum. So how does one become superior without trying? So, yeah, I'm not saying you shouldn't try, right? So that's the thing. I think that there are different ways to try, different ways to motivate yourself to achieve things and quote-unquote be superior. But one of the worst ways of doing it is to directly chase it and compare yourself to other people. A much better way to do it is to say, okay, you know, what am I really interested in in my life, right? Where are my sort of talents? What do I really enjoy doing? And identify that field first. And then, you know, hopefully your love for the field and your talent in the field and your engagement with the field will pull you in uh, such that you're spending vast quantities of time doing it, right? And that will automatically give you a set of, you know, skills and you will be on your way to mastery actually much faster than you would be if you constantly compare yourself to other people and motivate yourself by saying, I want to replace that guy, right? I want to be better than that guy. If that is your motivation, it's extrinsic to you, right? Because you're comparing yourself to other people, it's more difficult to sustain it because you're going to be pulled down by feelings of inadequacy or, you know, if you're doing well, you you might be pulled up by pride, but they say that pride comes before a fall, right? For a reason. And so you're going to be on an emotional roller coaster ride and you're going to be distracted away from the love for what you want to do And you're going to be thinking about where do I stack up relative to other people? So that's the pitfall, right? I mean, you want to avoid that. There's other ways you can love what you do and let that love guide you such that you become superior, so to speak. So all these concepts in your book are interwoven and related. And we're going to come back to each of these groups of negative thoughts. We're still on inferiority versus superiority, which also means comparison, right? But what you're talking about right there ties into focusing on a process as opposed to focusing on outcomes, which is somebody who's been focused on trying to, uh, not just trying to become, but becoming a writer and a comedian and a podcaster over seven years. At a certain point, I've just had to let go and say, I do this because I love to do it. And whether the world notices or not is out of my control. And I find that I enjoy it far more than if I'm worrying about what happens. So how does focusing on the process actually help me be happier in the moment and lead to greater success? So why does it make you happier in the moment? I think that is pretty intuitive to understand, right? If you're focusing on the process, you are involved in the task in the moment. You're pulled into it. You're in a state of flow, as they say, right? You're in the zone. And almost everybody's experienced that in some task or the other at some point or the other. And, you know, you just have to look in and you know that that's an enjoyable experience to have, right? So it's enjoyable in the moment, especially when you compare it to the alternative, which is to constantly compare yourself to how am I doing relative to what others are doing and how am I doing relative to what others expect of me and so on, you know? So then you're no longer involved in the task. Part of your brain is occupied by that comparison that is going to soak up some of your brain's capacity. It's not going to let you perform as well, right? And that is the reason why being in the moment and focusing on the process not just adds to your happiness and enhances happiness, but also is a more reliable determinant of mastery of the field. Because now all of you is involved in the in the process. All of you is involved in the task. And when you get to do that, you get to gallop along faster, so to speak, in terms of uh, acquiring skills. Uh, when you compare that to somebody who's constantly monitoring how well they're doing compared to how well they think they ought to be doing or how well other people are doing, right? 
that is, you know, obviously going to be detrimental to your performance and it's not going to add to your skills. So that's the reason why it's enjoyable and also a better determinant of your mastery over that field. And if you enjoy it, you'll do it longer and you'll give yourself the opportunity to actually be good at it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people in the moments that you're doing well, you're going to feel proud and maybe that's motivating, but there's definitely going to come moments when you're not doing as well and you're going to feel really miserable and down and out. And that can be hugely demotivating, right? For most people. So you're absolutely right. If you're more focused on the process in general, it's going to be a positive experience and that is then going to, you know, be kind of a virtuous cycle in a sense, right? Because you're going to enjoy it and you're going to then want to continue to do it. And then you're going to become better at it. And then that is going to make the enjoyment even higher and so on and so forth. And so, yeah, absolutely. The second bucket of negative thoughts is lack of love or connectedness. Why is this so important to us? We are hugely social as a species. You know, that's the one thing that I think that every psychologist will agree to when you ask them about what's a defining feature of being human. We're probably the most social species there is. Mammals in general tend to be social, but I think that we are more social than even all the other mammals there are. And there's lots of evidence for this, right? If you look at the genre of movies or novels, the biggest genre by far is romance and love. If you look at the world's happiest people and research on that, it turns out that the world's happiest people are the ones that have a strong sense of intimacy and have a very healthy and flourishing social life. So we are highly, highly social as a species. And because that's so important to us, and I think that all of us recognize it, even if we don't know the research on this. So we are very keen to have that, you know, healthy social life. And sometimes that can lead to us being almost desperate about love. And also not just about love, but worried about what might other people be thinking of me right now and how am I being judged? I think there's no real hardcore research on this, but, you know, there's a general popular idea floating around that, you know, we fear public speaking more than we fear death even, right? Have you heard this, Paul? I've um, heard that statistic. Yeah. So why would that be? That seems like so crazy, right? But it makes sense if you look at it from this lens of, you know, how important social life is to us. And we are afraid of how we get evaluated by other people. So our sense of kind of the impression that we want other people to have of us is, is uh, even more important than whether we are alive or not. And that's why we fear public speaking so much. Therefore, it kind of makes sense, right? So one of the kind of worries we have is how are we doing on that dimension of our social life? And that then can lead to negative thoughts about, you know, relationships, love, et cetera. So smart and successful people have grown up and become conditioned to both seek the rewards and recognition in the form of grades, offices, blue ribbons, starting positions on sports teams, all through their life. And they've not only been conditioned to want that, we have grown kind of accustomed and addicted to getting that recognition. Does that make it more difficult for us to build relationships with other people or to put ourselves first and not think of other people as highly as we do of ourselves? Yeah, I think I'd rather ask that question in a third person, but I realize. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I think that most of your audience is going to be able to relate to what you just said. Part of it has got to do with thinking that we are better than other people, right? Which is an egotistical thing. That obviously then, you know, tends to harm uh, the quality of our relationships. Nobody, right? I mean, even the world's dumbest guy, I don't know if it's even possible to come up with that kind of a designation for somebody, but even they would not like to be treated badly, right? And be told that they're dumb and so on. And so when you have this kind of approach or attitude toward other people that it makes it clear to them, either implicitly or explicitly, that you're smarter than they are and you're higher up than they are or better than they are. They don't like it, right? And that's not going to be good for your relationships. But there's also other kind of more subtle mechanisms that work to harm the quality of smart and successful people's relationships. One of the things that happens when you become richer, Paul, is that you obviously have more money and you're, you have more resources. And so you can afford to live in a bigger, say, house. You can afford to fly business class. So you tend to do things. You tend to spend money in ways that physically distances yourself from other people. You might even have your own media room. You don't have to go to the movies anymore. And if you're really rich, then have a swimming pool and perhaps even a, a tennis court, right? I mean, the really rich might have that. And you might think that that's such a nice life, right? To have all those things 
within arm's reach. Uh, you don't even have to go out, not use public transportation. But a hidden cost of that is that you're denying yourself the opportunity to rub shoulders with other human beings. And to the extent that that social life, you know, even if it doesn't really involve any sense of intimacy or, you know, even an exchange, but seeing other people is hugely important. And, you know, many of us have discovered that in an unfortunate way right now because of COVID, right? Because of social distancing and not being able to go out. But there's just a lot of research on that now that, you know, just that conversation that you had with your grocery store clerk or with that neighbor, et cetera, that used to happen so often before they are now missing from our life. And that's a huge cause for our you know, stress and not being as happy. And so that's another reason why being smart and successful might come in the way. But there's also research showing that money in particular makes you more self-centered. So this is slightly different from looking down on other people. It's different from you know, physical distance being imposed between yourself and others because you're uh, wealthier or, or better off. This is that you become more self-centered. And so you start to kind of prioritize your own goals and needs and aspirations a little bit over that of other people. And this can happen even with your own family members, which is kind of like, you know, really interesting at, at a conceptual level, but also sad at an emotional level. So you might actually sacrifice the well-being of your spouse or your kids or your parents in order to advance your own career or your self-centered goals. And that obviously is not very good for your happiness because if you don't have a sense of intimacy, then forget about happiness. Right, right. The last bucket of negative thoughts, we've discussed inferiority, lack of love or connectedness. The last one is lack of control. What's an example of a way somebody might have a thought that reflects a lack of control? Lack of control is also sometimes called a lack of a sense of autonomy or self-determination. So when you feel that the outcomes that you desire are no longer under your control to get, but, you know, really depends on the cooperation of other people or of the, you know, of luck and, and universe cooperating with you, that's when you have the sense of helplessness, right? Which is lack of autonomy. And, you know, that's what uh, we mean by lack of control. And so, when you feel like you're a puppet and, you know, under somebody else's thumb, I'm mixing metaphors here, but you get the idea, right? <laughs> sure. So, you know, one of the big reasons I think that teenagers are not very happy is because they feel like they have all the capabilities of an adult. You know, they certainly are strong by now and, you know, athletic and physically able. And they also feel mentally just as sharp and intelligent, but they don't have that sense of autonomy, right? They don't have the money. They don't have the resources to take the decisions and, they often feel that, you know, their parents or their well-wishers or caretakers, you know, are really controlling their outcomes. And that's a huge cause of that angst for them, right? And if you look at the other end of the spectrum, almost the other end, which is like really old people, right, living out the last few years of their lives, often they lack physical autonomy, right? They don't have control over their own bodies oftentimes, and they need the help of other people in order to even go to the restroom maybe or, you know, to get onto a bus and so on. And so that's another huge reason why they tend not to be happy because otherwise, you know, they're in a good position because, you know, they have, they tend to be quite financially well off by then they've also achieved things in general in their life. And so you would think that they ought to be happy, but it turns out that this is a huge cause for their unhappiness. And so that's what we mean by lack of control. I'll paraphrase a quote that the internet attributes to Abraham Lincoln. Who knows if he actually said it or not, but it's something to the effect that most people are as happy as they choose to be. Hmm. Do you believe that? I'd forgotten about that quote. I think it's a good quote. I'd have to say that I kind of agree with it, but not a whole lot. You know, and the reason why, let me start with why I do agree with it first. Once you realize that being happy, leading a happy and fulfilling life is an important priority for you. And most people, I think, recognize it somewhat implicitly if you ask them, how important is happiness for you? They'll probably say, yeah, it's, it's right up there, maybe in my top two, three, maybe. But I do think that there needs to be an explicit recognition of it. But once you recognize it, then it's up to you, right? To decide to put in place a set of practices, habits for you to think through the issues and figure out, okay, what is going to bring me to lead a happier life? So in that sense, I agree with that quote. But there's also a bunch of people for whom they're lacking the cooperation of external circumstances. You know, let me take a very specific kind of group of people, right? I mean, imagine the, 
people in Afghanistan now. Taliban has taken power, and particularly the women and children, right? I think that if you were to tell those people who are not happy, <laughs> Fred, <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, just, just some, decide to be happy. Exactly. So I do think that it applies to the people for whom, you know, basic needs are certainly taken care of. And, and even more than that, beyond basic needs, let's say that even to some extent, they're leading a life of luxury, let's say, right? I mean, relative luxury compared to most of the people in the world, uh, which I think that, you know, I would put most Americans in that bucket. I'd put most of the Western world in that bucket. So for them, I do think that there is some merit to the code. Along those lines, you grew up in a town you describe as a dusty and dirty place in India. Does coming from a much poorer country make you more cognizant and aware on a daily basis of how blessed you are in your current circumstances? Yeah, I do think that that's true. And I spent the first 26 years of my life in India before I moved to the United States. So it was a significant chunk of time, right? So if I had moved when I was, say, four or five years old, you might argue that, you know, uh, I probably forgot how it was back in India and so on. So, yeah, I do think that that's true. That said, you know, people adapt and they adapt pretty quickly. Um, (laughs) I think that in my case made me the type of person who remembers that, you know, things could be far worse. And all that is that I've kind of inculcated that as as a kind of a daily practice almost. So I maintain this journal every day and I write in it three things that I'm grateful for every day. I tried not to make it a kind of an onerous obligation every day. You know, it, it can easily kind of become one of those things that you do every day and it's no longer really meaningful. You know, I try to actually feel the gratitude rather than just think gratitude, if, if that makes sense. And so I think that that practice has kept me in touch with, in a sense, you know, comparing my current status to that of people. And by that, I don't you know mean in a negative sense, comparing my status or my you know life circumstances to that of people who don't have as much materially not to kind of gloat or you know feel superior but rather to just be thankful and a reverse of that involves kind of comparing yourself to people or myself to people who are kind of spiritually you know loosely termed spiritually more evolved and so that kind of then serves as the aspiration and and the reason why i bring it up right now in this context is because i, I read this in the book somewhere is that you know if we compared ourselves to people who are materially worse off and uh, feel grateful and compared ourselves to people who are spiritually better off and felt inspired rather than the other way around, right? I mean, so I think the tendency, the book was kind of talking about this tendency and it was assuming or, or suggesting that this is more prevalent. And I do think that I agree with that assumption in the book that we tend to compare ourselves to people who are materially better off and want to kind of emulate their success and spiritually, you know, less evolved, let's say they're more, less kind or something, and feel holier than thou. That's why The Real Housewives is such a popular show. <laughs> we can all feel morally superior when we watch those folks, right. even if they have more money than we have. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. We actually have some research on gossip and why we tend to even patronize or buy gossip magazines like, you know, People or Us Weekly and so on. And one of the hypotheses uh, that we entertain in the in the research project is precisely that that you know uh, it serves as a point of comparison where we get to feel morally superior to other people <laughs> well there's there's got to be a reason they're so popular right so huh? you said a minute ago that you have to be purposeful or you suggested that you have to be purposeful about happiness because many times we say we want to be happy but our actions tell a different story we choose what we feel think will make us happy and we're often wrong. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah. So I like to talk about a specific example here, which many people can relate to, which involves relationships, right? So imagine that you are this wonderful girl in a great relationship with this boyfriend. And, you know, you can imagine the mirror image of it if you're a boy and you like everything about this boyfriend. He's a talented guy. He's got great attitude. He makes you feel good. He treats you like a queen and so on and so forth. But there's one thing that you would like him to change, and which is that, you know, you would like him to lose some weight. He's a little too plump for his own good, right? And you give him lots of suggestions on how he could go about losing, shedding a few of those pounds. And, you know, you talk to him about diet and exercise and good sleep and not being stressed out and so on and so forth. 
but it's all through one year and out the other for him. Nothing seems to really stick with him, all the advice that he gave him. And this goes on for, let's say, in this example, in the story, it goes on for a couple of years. And then one fine day, he comes running to you really excited, right? And he tells you, hey, 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 you know, like, guess what? I met this girl at the gym. He shows you the photograph of this girl and it turns out, you know, just for the story that it's a very attractive looking girl. And he says that she's managed to convince me that if I do a set of things, I'm going to lose weight. So I'm really excited to try it out. You're really curious, you know, what could she have said that convinced your boyfriend <laughs> to do this, right? Because you've been trying to give him advice and you think that your advice has been good. And so you ask him, you know, so what did she say? It turns out that person has told him exactly the set of things that you've been telling him for the last two years, exercise and diet and get good sleep, don't be stressed out and so on and so forth. But he seems like to want to do it now, right? So we actually use this scenario in one of our experiments and we ask participants, we put participants in one of two groups, right? One set of participants, we ask them, okay, so imagine that you really want to maximize your happiness. What should you do in this scenario? Should you get really angry at your boyfriend and tell him that, look, you know, you've been telling him all these things and he's never listened to you. He's never done any of those things. And you're frankly very upset with him because, you know, some other person has to come in and you respect that other person um, more than you respect me. You're taking me for granted, that kind of a response or kind of pat him on the back and tell him, you know, I feel really happy for you. I think this is going to really work out. You know, let's see how it goes. I'm really, really happy and encourage it, right? What should the happiness maximizing person do? A vast majority of the people, I can't remember the numbers now, but, you know, somewhere in the 90s, 95% or something choose option B. So they realize at some level that if they were to wear the happiness hat, so to speak, that the appropriate thing to do is not to shout, not to let this be an ego issue and swallow your pride at some level and then pat him on the back and encourage him. We ask another set of participants, what is it that you would do? We don't ask them that question. Right. <laughs> what would you do, right? And there is still a majority that say that they would pick B. <laughs> I'm actually somewhat skeptical about that. I think that many people want to appear as if they would do the right thing, I think. So in reality, I think that if you were to observe actual couples in whom something like this unfolded, I would imagine that, in fact, if you ask me, I think a vast, not vast majority, but a majority would actually pick the first option, which is to get upset and be angry with the boyfriend. Uh, but still, I mean, if you look at what people say they would do, okay, which I think is erring on the side of the, the quote-unquote correct response, that proportion is around 70%. So a good 20% or one in five people acknowledge or accept that the happiness maximizing thing to do is to encourage the boyfriend and not be angry with him and so on, but they still can't bring themselves to do it. So that's in one scenario. And there's other scenarios that we have. The big point that we make here is that we often at some deeper level, if we were to kind of like be conscious of our decisions, we are aware of what is the happiness maximizing decision to take or what's the happiness maximizing choice we should be making. But if we're not conscious and if you're not deliberative about it, we might often forget that and we might end up making the choice that maximizes something else. In the case of this story, it might be ego or the satisfaction from being right, right? And putting the other person in his place or what have you. In other contexts, it might be pursuit of fame or money or value for money or beauty. So other things that we acknowledge are means to happiness, you know, so we think that all of those things really are less important than happiness. And yet we often tend to find that people sacrifice happiness for the sake of those very things. So that's the big point that we make there. And because we're not consciously trying to maximize or optimize our happiness, we actually devalue happiness, even though we think we're doing what is going to make us happy. Yeah. Yeah, we devalue happiness. And I think that that's partly because of not being conscious of the choices that we are making and the implications that those choices have for our happiness. Or even the sources of happiness. We assume that the sources of happiness, and this is something that I, this is what led to this podcast, is that I thought that what I was supposed to be doing is maximizing, you know, my professional outcomes, salary, my promotions, all this kind of stuff, when I wasn't seeing the part of my job that was really making me happy was being a part of a great team with great colleagues who are really smart and interesting and fun to play golf with and drink beers after work. And then I quit and I lost that part and I still had the money, but I wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I do think that there is some truth to this idea that we often don't recognize the true determinants of happiness and we go with, you know, what society tells us or, you know, what, what would turn out to be 
the false or the fake determinants of happiness. Absolutely. And I think that that is partly the reason why we end up sacrificing happiness for those very things, right? I mean, why do we pursue money so much beyond the point where it makes us happy? Why do we want fame so much beyond the point where it makes us happy and we are willing to sacrifice our relationships, our health, oftentimes, our free time, you know, that's another thing, right? I mean, lots of studies showing that time affluence, as they call it, is a huge determinant of our happiness and feeling a sense of time scarcity is a huge happiness killer. And nevertheless, we take on more than, you know, we can handle and we bite off more than we can chew. And why do we do that? I think it's partly because we, you know, do at some level feel that those are the true determinants of happiness, you know, being really challenged and leading a busy life and pursuing that next big thing and being famous, et cetera, is going to make us happy. And I think it's partly that drives um, this tendency to sacrifice and devalue happiness. Your Coursera course on happiness is one of the most popular courses on their entire platform. To what do you attribute its popularity? It's a great question. I think that it's uh, determined by multiple things. So one of those uh, is that there is just a deep hunger for the topic of happiness, right? And we can get into why that is the case. I think that partly it's because there's a lot more people on earth now who have experienced as a matter of you know personal experience rather than some abstract truth out there, right? That more money, more fame, more power, etc., is not going to make you happier, right? If you just rewind, like even hundred years ago, the only people on earth who could actually say that, yeah, I know it to be the truth from personal experience that lots of money is not going to make you happy, might have been the Rockefellers of the world and the you know king and queens of uh, Europe or something like that. But now, you know, I think there are literally millions. Maybe I'd put the number at around five hundred million people around the world who know it as a matter of personally experienced truth that more money is not going to make them happier. And so there's just more, you know, I want to use the word authentic seekers of happiness out there. Okay. So that's one. I think the second thing that's going on is that a lot of people feel that we need a big change, right? I mean, it it can't be business as usual. I think that the environment is getting decimated. There's lots of big problems out there. And so kind of looking inward and finding a sense of inner peace, given this kind of tumultuous time that we live in, is a very, very important thing to do. So that kind of increased the prioritization of the inner sense of contentment, if you will, or inner sense of calm uh, to deal with the external kind of problems is another reason why a lot of people are seeking it. And I also think that there is uh, just a higher level of perceived stress, especially among, you know, people, the business people, that they feel that they're going through a period that is far more negative in terms of emotions than anybody else in the, in the past. Lots of reasons. Of course, you know, I'd also like to believe that it's partly because of my personality, right? In the sense that, <laughs> look, I'm an extrovert, okay? And I am somebody who likes to talk and relatively high on energy and, and things like that. And I think that that's a useful set of traits to have if you want to teach a class on happiness. If you want to teach, I don't know, uh, calculus or something like that, maybe they won't be as positive. But if you're teaching a class on happiness, I do think that those are positive things. To be fair, I think that there's a lot of people who don't like that, right? I mean, it's just, I mean, there's no right or wrong here. I think that they just don't vibe with a personality that's, you know, kind of in your face a little bit. I like the way you defined your target market, authentic happiness seekers. It's the perfect intersection of you as a marketer and you as someone exploring happiness. So do you feel pressure to be in a good mood now that you've associated your brand with happiness? Don't you have the right to get uh, upset once in a while? When they run out of coffee in the faculty lounge, do you have the right to break some cups every once in a while? Uh-huh. Yeah. So to feel kind of a sense of optimism, feel resilient, feel hopeful, feel in general positive and to see the lighter side of things are a set of qualities that I associate with somebody who's happy. Right? I mean, that's kind of my definition of happiness, if you will. I happen to be one of the lucky people who was actually born kind of happy in that way, if you will. Right. I mean, obviously I had to kind of build on it and not fritter it away, so to speak, right. By taking wrong or bad decisions. But I do have that going for me. I already have a nice solid platform of happiness that my genes have given me. So just so you know, In the happiness research, this is called the happiness set point. You know, this is something that you're genetically endowed with and other people are not so lucky, right? I mean, they were born not so happy. And so for them, it's a bit of a kind of a more of a struggle, you know, swimming against the tide, it feels like in order for them to be happy. And so given that I already have that platform, it comes kind of naturally to me being a somewhat optimistic and resilient and hopeful uh, state of mind. And on top of it, you know, I don't really 
I don't know why that might be the case. You ask a perfectly valid question. I think that, <laughs> you know, I, given that I'm a kind of a happiness coach, if you will, you know, there's some onus on me or responsibility on me to kind of exhibit that happiness. And so it can be pressure, but I really don't feel it. And I think it's partly because of what I said earlier, right? That I'm already happy enough. But on top of that, I also don't necessarily think that happy person doesn't lose his temper or can't feel vulnerable or feel afraid or cry and so on. And so all of those are valid emotions and they're appropriate for certain moments. And I don't, okay, so I don't really consider myself to be some kind of a God man, right? I mean, <laughs> despite being Indian, because there's a lot of Indian people who like, you know, have this association of being a spiritual guru or something. So my approach is entirely scientific. I'm more of a messenger, so to speak, of the literature and science on happiness rather than somebody who's a kind of a player, so to speak, who's going to show you how to manifest all the happiness traits. So I think that too leads me not to put a whole lot of pressure on myself. What do you hope your work accomplishes? It's a good question, Paul. And I'm at the University of Texas where our kind of a logo or tagline or something is what starts here changes the world. Okay. What starts here changes the world. I personally wouldn't have chosen that tagline for ourselves, you know, if I were a branding guy, because that seems to make a couple of assumptions that in order for you to be a worthwhile entity, you need to change the world. I mean, otherwise, who are you? And it also assumes that assumes that changes are good. <laughs> what I'm getting at is that I really don't have any major aspirations for doing anything. Okay. I want to give you a quote by Mother Teresa. And I'm paraphrasing her here. Uh, she said something along the lines of, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. We can all do small things with great love. You know, so I want to do small, big things. You know, I'll leave it up to the universe to judge that. But I want to start by doing things with great love. And so I want to start with what do I love? Kind of devote a lot of attention to it. I'd be thrilled if, you know, I end up leading a life of, immense happiness and fulfillment and centeredness and harmony within myself. And that then kind of overflows into affecting all the people that I happen to come in touch with either directly or indirectly through an online medium and so on. That would be an awesome life for me. And I don't want to kind of, you know, be known as this famous author or somebody who changed the policy of a country or, or something like that. You know, if those things happen and they lead to like enhancement of people's uh, well-being, then that's great. But I feel like, you know, already life has been great, you know, with what I've done. I don't really have any major, I, I don't think about that much, really. Two more questions. What makes you hopeful? I do believe that underneath it all, we as a species, obviously we've been very dominant, we've been very powerful, and we've changed the, you know, the, the painting, so to speak, by our actions and not all of it good. A lot of people would think that we are on the brink or maybe even over the brink. We just don't know it in terms of climate change and things like that. I do believe that we are at the end of it all, underneath it all, we are good. Our nature is good. Oftentimes we act in more self-centered and more harmful ways because of the kind of stresses on our uh, psychology and, and our, you know, the stresses that we go through. So that gives me a sense of hope that, you know, at the end of it, if it really comes down to it, I think that you can count on human beings to pull their weight and do the right thing. And, you know, maybe it's true that we are already over the brink, who knows, uh, in which case, you know, obviously then it's not good. And we probably are headed for extinction or other species are headed that way too. But I do think that we are good natured. And so we'll pull through. We're also very smart. So maybe there's a technology out there that can reverse some of these things. And maybe it's not too late. So that gives me hope. And the second thing that gives me hope uh, actually at a much bigger, deeper level is that I think of all the things that are happening as a bit of a drama, almost like a play. Hinduism, I'm not necessarily a religious guy, but in Hinduism, we have this term Maya. Maya is an illusion and it's a grand drama that's playing out, right? None of this, what we see, what we go through is really real at a very deep level. It's like the movie, The Matrix, right? There is a deeper reality in the movie, The Matrix, that deeper reality is a horrible reality. You know, all these babies and things are like, you know, sources of electricity or something like that. That's powering these computers that are running the world. But in my version of conception of the universe, uh, the deeper reality is actually a benign and positive underlying reality. 
So we are all part of a, you know, you might call it consciousness or cosmic intelligence or what have you. And we're all deeply interconnected. And what is going on right now, all these stresses, et cetera, that are going on. Of course, there's good things going on as well. All of this is, all of this is drama. All of this is kind of an exterior kind of cosmetic uh, layer of happenings. But deep down, um, there's nothing really to worry about. And we go back to connect to that cosmic consciousness once we die and we are reconnected to it and maybe we are reborn. So I do believe in reincarnation, for example. So that, I guess, worldview or viewpoint or, you know, assumption uh, gives me a sense of hope as well that, you know, there really isn't much to worry about. You know, the universe has existed for 14 billion years, the earth for four and a half billion years. We exist for 80 years, 90 years. As a species, we have... I saw this um, show by, uh, what's that guy? Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, so he has this, I think it's also called Cosmos, which uh, I think Carl Sagan had before, but this one's on Netflix or something. And he, in the first episode, he talks about how if you think about the existence of the earth as one calendar year, right? Then human beings came onto earth on December 31st at 12 noon. So that's how recent we are. So, you know, we tend to kind of treat ourselves as the center of the universe and think of ourselves as being that really important, but it has existed for a long time. It can take care of itself. So that also gives me a sense of hope. Last question. Do you feel rich? That's a kind of a loaded question, right? What do you mean by richness? And I think that that's partly your intent as well. Uh, So uh, certainly in terms of, you know, what most people would associate with the word rich, which is financial wealth, I feel like I'm in a very good place. I have a great job that pays me adequately for all my requirements. And I have been lucky enough to not have any major contingencies in my life and extenuating circumstances that that allowed me to preserve some of that financial wealth and so on. So I feel good. But I think that a better set of associations to have with with the word richness is not just financial wealth, but you know, life's richness, you know, richness of experiences and so on. And there too, if anything, I feel like I'm even more lucky in in that regard because I've had this varied set of experiences uh, because, you know, uh, I come from another country, another culture, another time altogether. And I can't take all credit for it, right? It's partly got to do with my personality and partly due to luck. I've had such a varied set of experiences, right? So I've experimented with all kinds of mind-altering stuff, for example, and had an engineering degree, then went to get an MBA degree, and I've spent time learning scuba diving and learning meditation and, uh, you know, things in between, going clubbing and going to raves and, you know, just vast sort of experiences that have made me experience so many different kinds of, you know, emotions. I've had so many different experiences that I feel like I've had a very rich life. You know, I've managed to, I think, get into my 50 odd years of existence. I feel like, you know, maybe 75, 80 years just through, you know, partly my open-mindedness, but also partly because of what life has afforded me and thrown down my path. So yeah, I, I do feel very rich in that sense. You passed the quiz. Congratulations. <laughs> Raj, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So I have a website that's titled happysmarts.com. And there I have, you know, various things that I've done, my courses, my book, and my articles that appeared in Psychology Today and so on. So I think that's the one-stop shop, I would say. You know, I'll just stop there. Happysmarts.com. The link will be in the show notes. Raj Raghunathan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your book and this conversation. Thank you so much, Paul. I, you know, I have to tell you that usually when people ask me uh, for an interview like this, they come at it kind of cold. Uh, they haven't really read my book or anything. They're just kind of, you know, looking for another person to have on their show. And they ask me questions which are not really as well thought through and comprehensive as your questions were. So I really should tell you that I'm very honored that, you know, you read my book and asked me such wonderful questions. And, you know, that made this interview so much more meaningful for me. Well, I appreciate that. I feel like if you're going to give me an hour of your time, I owe you. And if the audience is going to give us an hour of their time, I owe it to all parties to do the work and to make this as meaningful as possible. So thank you for saying that. And thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate Raj taking the time to speak with us today. Let's uh, get to the takeaways. Remember those buckets of negative thoughts we talked about in the first half of the podcast inferiority, lack of love, lack of control. If you can catch yourself having a negative thought 
and you can recognize which bucket that goes into, I think it does a lot to take the power away from the negative thought and to say, oh, this is me falling into a trap of typical human thinking. Let's recognize that if it's an inferiority thing, I don't have to be the alpha dog in every single one of my relationships in my life. If it's a lack of love, remember that you have tons of people who love you in your life. If it's a lack of control, you decide that you're in control of your life. It's funny, when I was reading this book, I was like, I recognize each of these things, and it kind of made me laugh at how silly all those buckets of thoughts are. Takeaway number two, state of being superior is good. Pursuit of superiority is negative. That is, the pursuit of superiority will not make us happier. And that's why it's so important to focus on the process and the things that we do in life. Do it for the love of doing the thing. Cook because you love to cook. Write because you love to write. Do not expect your novel to become a New York Times bestseller. And who knows, maybe you'll find flow and actually write a pretty damn good novel without which that flow, you wouldn't even have a chance of finishing the novel. So focus on doing the things you love to the extent you can in your life. Takeaway number three, comparison, which is sort of related to number one. If you ever find yourself feeling inferior from a financial or status perspective, ask yourself if you trade places with that person, whole thing, whole kitten caboodle. Are they better off than you spiritually? And if not, why would you want to trade places with them? And if they are, ask yourself why and try to emulate the positive behaviors that they demonstrate in their life, not because it's going to make you better off or more superior, but because it's going to make you happier day in, day out. Lastly, and this is number four, it's a bonus. It's a bonus, folks. Don't devalue happiness. Happiness is the goal. It is not, as we talked about in the Stoic episode a few months back, happiness is the end goal. So let's focus on the end goal and not on the terminal goals like, I want to make money because then I will be happy, because that is not the case, and you're putting too much faith in the instrumental goal. Focus on happiness and those things that make you happy. What makes you happy? Health, happy family members, good relationships, and doing things that feel connected to your purpose as a human being. That's it. Thanks for staying to the end. If you have a minute, write a review, share crazy money with your friends. Next week, I've got a great conversation with Cornell's Bob Frank, the author of Success and Luck, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy. It's an in-depth and non-judgmental, it's non-judgmental, just because you're lucky doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's a non-judgmental look at the role luck plays in both keeping us alive and helping us achieve good fortune. Until then, Mike Carano, you know what to do.